This is a Dice of Brussels. Really happy to bring you another one of our interviews uh, that we have talked about uh, back in September. This interview with uh, Monica Brusenbach, my Slova, was due to be recorded at the Oasis conference back at the start of September, but for various reasons, uh, we've had to push it back until now. But we're very happy to talk with her uh, about uh, her recent work on perpetual Brexit and about what's happening in Czechia in relation to both the UK relationship, but also relations with the EU more generally. So, uh, following this, you're going to hear uh, Monica, who's an associate professor at the uh, Masaryk uh, University in Bono uh, in the Czech Republic in the Department of International Relations and European Studies. <laughs> say hello. And then it's me. And I'm also going to say thank you to David, who had put together the arrangements of this and the excellent questions that I got all the praise for. Thank you, Monica, for, for joining us for this uh, episode. Um, Maybe the the starting point that kind of prompted us to to have this conversation was the recent work you've been doing about uh, perpetual Brexit, um, which I know that this podcast, since we're now in our, I think we're in our seventh year, if not our eighth year of doing it, I can sympathise with. Could you just explain what you mean by this this notion of a perpetual Brexit? Yes, definitely. I mean, it, it's an ongoing research and it still has not been published and I'm working on it with my brilliant co-author Ben Martil from the University of Edinburgh. So I'm not entirely sure to what extent I can actually openly talk about it at this stage, but uh, basically we observed that Brexit quite interestingly defies the expectations derived from the literature on policy delivery. And we we know from the literature that leaders often celebrate when they manage to get something done, especially when it's a big deal. It's this tried and tested way to improve their political image. But Brexit seems to be a whole different ballgame or or a different kettle of fish. Uh, Maybe fish is a more suitable expression in the case of Brexit. So, So even though the conservative leaders made promises to successfully deliver Brexit, they later highlighted the external obstacles to do so, to deliver the type of Brexit they desired. And by doing so, they kept Brexit issue very much alive and kicking. And the end result is the state of seemingly perpetual Brexit. And so in our research, we are trying to make sense of this cyclical process of constant mobilization and remobilization when the Conservative Party leaders keep opening and reopening the Brexit issue, even though the formal process, the the act of withdrawal itself, has been already completed. And we show that it's basically a gift that keeps on giving for the Conservative Party. Okay, and for this podcast as well, Um, and indeed for researchers like you and uh, and I. what is it that you think makes Brexit be like this? You know, what, what you know, why is it different from other issues? What you know, why do we keep on uh, returning to to this question? Yeah, we we think that it's for a number of reasons. So, uh, first, Brexit is this extremely useful mobilization tool for the Conservative Party. It taps into the existing 
fears of citizens, both internal and external, and their desire to take back control. It's kind of a fascinating dance in this sense. It has also become a core concern for the Conservative Party, which has increasingly come to define itself by its approach to the European integration. And also, it's a key to how to maintain the uneasy coalition of support, so to speak. Brexit has helped to glue it together on multiple occasions. And finally, it has successfully, the, the party has successfully managed to own the issue as such. And the crucial thing uh, about Brexit is that successfully delivery of Brexit effectively drops the issue from active contestation. And we say that uh, there is this specific type of pledges of which Brexit is a prime example. We call them issue eclipsing pledges. And these are usually promises so big and so broad that once you deliver on them, you can't use that issue to mobilize your supporters anymore. So it's like this one-time use superpower. And these pledges are not like everyday promises. They are really massive in scope. Uh, they are often vague, maybe more like slogans rather than specific plans. They, they often represent this idealized vision of the future, are open to different interpretations, and also are super popular among key supporters. And because of all of this, they represent this tricky situation for the leaders. I mean, delivering on them can bring many benefits, but it also means a loss of this super powerful mobilization tool. So it's, it's a very delicate balancing act with different strategies and with different incentives for those in office versus those trying to win uh, the office. It's interesting. It feels very much like there's a, a, an ambivalence here. On the one hand, it's uh, potentially very uh, effective, you know, about shaping ideas, mobilising people, uh, pulling together coalitions, you know, all the kind of things that politicians are interested in, in doing. And at the same time, you're talking about the problems that come with that, about the uncertainty, the instability, the scope for it to all go uh, badly wrong or to you know disillusion people so are those two sides necessarily connected or do you see them as two different things you know what's the relationship between the upside and the downside yeah we we basically see them as really intimately uh connected uh in the case of what we really call our issue eclipsing uh, pledges of which Brexit is this huge uh, example. And exactly because it presents such a tricky situation uh, for the leaders, because on the one hand, they would really probably like to uh, declare the issue as delivered because it can bring so many benefits. But on the other hand, they know that they would lose the superpower mobilization tool. And uh, it is uh, in this kind of tension that lies uh, the research puzzle that, that, that we try to solve uh, in this particular paper. So do you, see, do you see Brexit as necessarily being this kind of uh, eclipsing issue? That you know, could it could it have been? Could we have considered the question in a way that wouldn't have made it operate in this kind of way, or is it, or is it just a necessary function of, of what it involves? Yes, yes, we we basically uh, we basically say that uh, 
in the case of this issue eclipsing policies of or pledges, these tensions really come to come to life and uh, they are in this collision in the specific type of policies or pledges that are intended really to provide this kind of comprehensive resolution to a significant policy issue and conclude long standing debates over it. And yes, this can be rare, uh, but due to the complex nature of most policy uh, matters. But yes, we argue in our paper that Brexit is this quintessential issue ending or or um, issue eclipsing uh, policy. And yes, we think that they possess like several shared characteristics. Uh, one of them is for instance, the finality uh, that the goal of these pledges is usually to establish a new status quo or, or norm or, or standard that is intended to endure indefinitely, maybe. For instance, uh, Brexit was meant to conclusively settle the UK's long-standing debate over EU membership. Uh, closely linked to this is probably the concept of uh, irreversibility, that these type of pledges are perceived as final and not easily uh, undone. Once again, Brexit is a case in point, because once set in motion, it proved it has proved largely uh, irreversible, at least in the short to medium uh, term. Uh, and also the complexity and the length, obviously, of the process to rejoin the EU would underscore these characteristics. Uh, also, like these type of pledges usually signify a really substantial deviation from the existing policies or, or norms. Once again, uh, this, in the case of Brexit, this manifests uh, in the alternation of countries' uh, status and so on and so forth. Yes, yeah, so we, we, we say that there are certain characteristics and this tension uh, is really inherent to, the, to this type of policy pledges, such as Brexit. Which raises then the obvious question of, is there a way out of this? Uh, kind of this issue, you know, that you can you can set this, I, you know, I see how you can set this up as a, a thing we should do, and then it's highly problematic. But, you know, is there a, a way to, to lapse that back into a, a more conventional kind of policy question or policy question where we, we reach some kind of consensus or stability that, that means that we're not locked in? Uh, an endless cycle of challenge and re-challenge and reformulation? That, that's a great uh, question. Uh, yes, we think that it's possible to break uh, the cycle. Uh, for instance, when uh, there are some longer term generational shifts, which you know, make their presence known in the electorate, or if issues other than, for instance, Brexit prove better at mobilizing supporters uh, on the on the right. And uh, of course, we, we have been seeing that the saliency of Brexit issue as such also has been changing. It's not as uh, huge under Rishi Sunak as it was under uh, Boris uh, Johnson. But for now, however, we think that it's not uh, the, the, the case that's for now, really, for the Conservative Party, there has Brexit still plays this role of really hugely important mobilizing uh, issue. And as Britain looks forward to general election, which is likely to take place this time next year, we, we, we might be looking uh, for another case when the relationship uh, to Europe, whether it's by its membership of the European Court, uh, of human rights or you know other tools might once again become a significant political issue. But yes, this is not to say that the saliency of Brexit cannot like you know go through ups and downs. 
that this definitely rise, you know, under different premierships and leaderships. Okay, your your mention of generations makes me slightly slightly weak at the prospect <laughs> of thinking about a generational timescale. Uh, mm -hmm. But let, let's let's try and think a bit more uh, narrowly a, a, about that. Clearly, one of the things that happens with the end of Boris Johnson's time as prime minister is that we do see a shift briefly under Liz Truss. And then now uh, we've had a whole year of Rishi Sunak. Um, do, you, do you think that things like the Windsor framework, uh, like the engagement with the uh, European political community, do these steps already start to speak to an attempt to transform the issue uh, of Brexit for the Conservatives? Or, or, or is this just a, a contingent situation that is not actually producing a, a stable uh, management of the, of the question? Mm. Yeah, once again, that's the million pound question, isn't it? I mean, yes, if we if you look at the recent news, I mean, it definitely seems that things are becoming a bit more stable with uh, fewer of those big disagreements we used to see. And there is definitely an argument to be made that while the actual mechanics of Brexit might be advancing, uh, the, the political consequences and everything around it still have not found uh, a full stop. And yes, I absolutely do agree. The mood is changing. There are definitely some good things going on. And there is no denying the fact that there have been steps towards normalization. The Windsor Framework Agreement has set this very positive tone. There is the UK's re-entry into the horizon uh, Europe research funding scheme. And that's truly a big deal, not uh, just for the uh, Brits, uh, but also for researchers across Europe, because uh, the UK has some of the world's leading universities and research facilities and scientists. So it's like having the star player back on the team, which is which is amazing. But that still does not mean that all's being settled and Brexit keeps coming back uh, to the agenda. There is still so much to be discussed, so much uh, to be negotiated. And yes, the logic of our argument on the perpetual Brexit is that it's going to be the case uh, for some time because the Conservative Party benefits electorally from reopening the issue and from citing the incompleteness of the uh, withdrawal, even though its saliency might change, even though it might be higher this time and lower uh, that time. But uh, Brexit has become such an integral part of the Conservative Party's identity uh, that it has been this kind of instinctually go to strategy for the conservative for uh, for decades. And obviously, it's also being held by the very vague nature of the referendum uh, mandate. And yeah, we keep seeing that Brexit continues to be a topic of discussion. I mean, at the recent Conservative Party conference in Manchester, the topic was still the bus, you know, with Rishi Sunak suggesting that it might be something he might use against Keir Starmer in a sense of the, you know, Labour proposal threatening the type of the Tory Brexit. And on the other hand, at the Labour conference in Liverpool, uh, there were calls from people like Neil Kinnock to prioritise rebuilding ties with European neighbours when in office. So we, we are still seeing Brexit uh, being brought back on the uh, on the agenda. Yeah, it's interesting. But at the same time, you know, I think what I'd seen from the party conferences was that 
there was an attempt to try and move beyond it and I, you know i think it's a useful kind of corrective to to note that it's still there and you know that one of the reasons party leaders want to move beyond talking about brexit is that brexit is still a difficult subject and one which raises emotions and uh you know gets people uh agitated let's say um yes yes i, I absolutely yeah. i absolutely i absolutely agree and perhaps it's really essential to understand that when we talk about Brexit, we are not just discussing the event or the process itself, but it's also about the broader UK-EU relations. And yes, Brexit has been a significant process, but it's just one chapter in this long story of UK-EU relations. And it's about deeper issues than just the Brexit process. And exactly because its complexity is so huge and extends beyond the immediate political or economic landscapes because it confronts the UK with many questions and debates on society, political economy, trade, uh, security and party politics. And it's also tied to identity politics, just like you mentioned, in a sense that perhaps more than any other policy decision, Brexit has been deeply tied uh, to questions of national identity, sovereignty, and perceptions of autonomy, which makes it a very deeply emotional issue. So it was not merely a policy decision, but maybe more of a statement about the UK's identity and its place in the world. And as such, these issues are essentially uh, probably never ending ones. Apart from the fact that it's also very practical, I mean, the UK and EU are quite literally next door neighbours. And, and you know the saying, you can't pick your family uh, nor your geographic location. And because of this economic interdependence, they are also forever bound to be trading buddies because of this closeness. And then there are, of course, the historical linkages, uh, the shared security uh, concerns and so on and so forth. So even though the UK has backed its backs, so to speak, and left the EU club, uh, these two entities are probably like the classic on again and off again, coupling every rom-com. They, they just can't quit uh, each, uh, each other, even though it would be like desire to stop banging on about Europe, but probably it's essentially impossible. It's interesting though, isn't it? At, you know, at the same time, all those things you talked about, and I, I completely agree, is that actually it suggests that Brexit is not really actually about the EU or the relationship with the EU. It's about it's a, a prism or a, or a mirror through which you see all these other issues. You know, it becomes a sort of a, a touchstone kind of issue. So, you know, one of the things that's always struck me is that for all the concern about Brexit or about the relationship with the EU, that very few British politicians actually know or care about the specifics, except in as much as they reflect some other set of priorities. I, I don't know if that that fits with what you see or, or or how you've understood the issue yes i i definitely i definitely uh, agree that uh it's uh, a kind of proxy for so uh, many other issues and it's definitely not just about the uk's relationship to the european uh, union and uh, many politicians uh in the uk but not just in the UK, but we are talking about the UK at this time. Uh, they are using it, you know, for for various, you know, other purposes to mobilize, uh, to mobilize 
the supporter. So it's definitely not just about the uh, the relationship to the European Union, but about but it's such a convenient issue, you know, to 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 touch upon other things. No, definitely. And I, I think we'll see that. And, you know, then that kind of raises another question, which is going away from the Conservative Party, thinking about uh, the possibility of a Labour government uh, the, after the next general election. Do, do you see that changing things or do you think that Labour has got its own internal dynamics that will also make it very much caught up in similar kind of uh, perpetual model? Hmm. Well, this will be fascinating uh, to watch. I mean, the Labour Party will probably certainly try to kind of finalise Brexit uh, in a sense that it's currently making ways uh, with the talk of potential TCA renegotiation. And But I think that even if the Labour wins the election, uh, manages to settle some issues and probably improve the cooperation with the EU in some areas, it's still going to face really strong opposition from the Conservatives on basically every move uh, it uh, it might make. So uh, once again, going back to uh, to our original argument in that article, we think that the issue will keep coming back because it works so well for the Conservatives uh, because they will benefit from bringing it back in one form or another again and again. I think, yeah, we will have to see really what happens there. And I think, you know, that's going to be another interesting part of this is what happens to the Conservative Party if they do lose the next general election. You know, where, where does their centre of gravity shift to and presumably to a more extreme uh, position on the EU? So, you know, does that make it difficult for Labour to do very much with the EU if the EU is concerned about what comes after a, a Starmer government. Um, but let's maybe park that for uh, a later date. Let's let's get through the general election first. Um, yes, but, but I absolutely do do uh, agree that, and we hear it, you know, from various experts and commentators that suggest that the European capitals might be hmm, probably hard to convince, you know, without the UK making substantial uh, con concessions of some even, you know, label Starmer's aspirations at this point as delusional believing that the UK probably cannot get a much better deal while remaining outside the single market and the uh, customs union. And yeah, then there there are so many you know practical issues. While some probably labour propositions might seem achievable, others like for instance signing a, a new veterinary agreement might require the UK to really conform to the EU standards. And such negotiations would really take a very long time and be very uh, very uh, complicated. Yeah, so it will be it will be fascinating. Will will be fascinating to to watch truly. Your mention of uh, European capitals kind of brings me to sort of second part of what we wanted to, to talk to you about. Uh, based in the Czech Republic, one of the things, well, there are several things, but let's start. What's the, what's the attitude of Czech politicians and I guess as much as they care about it, the Czech population towards Brexit and towards the UK, perhaps more broadly, you know, is there a, uh, a degree of sympathy, a desire to kind of move to uh, 
uh, a new stage of relations, either through the EU or bilaterally, because, you know, one of the things that we see from the UK side is that there seems to be quite a lot of effort put into building bilateral links uh, in Central uh, and Eastern Europe by uh, London. Um, and it's just, it'd be interesting to kind of get your, 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 your perspective on whether that actually has any impact and has generated any kind of sympathy. Uh, yes, I mean, th there have been always uh, quite formal relationship between the UK and, and the Czech Republic and uh, the Czechs have always had this kind of soft spot uh, for uh, for uh, the Brits. Really, there has been uh, this kind of warmth towards everything British uh, in, uh, in our uh, society. So both within the broader Czech society and also uh, within like the Czech political representation, there was a lot of regret obviously at at the referendum uh, at the referendum uh, result and uh, you know like the negotiations and everything it's been really uh quite uh quite difficult and sometimes we had like the problems understanding what's really going on uh in the uh in the UK and brexit has definitely substantially influenced uh, the relationship and it's always not easy to separate these two, like, I mean, the bilateral uh, perspective from, you know, kind of the multilateral uh, one, like from the Czech perspective, the mutual relationship was really simply cl closely linked to the UK-EU relations. And as the Czechs saw it, Brexit and the whole withdrawal process, it did cause some damage and, and the British relationship with the EU was not always like functioning really, uh, really uh, well. And, you know, this combined with the with the domestic political turmoil in the UK meant that the UK probably could not put enough energy into nurturing uh, the bilateral ties with its uh, with its allies making it hard to repair the trust deficit with EU capitals, including Prague. But this has been changing uh, a lot lately. Uh, Brexit has opened up these possibilities how to strengthen the bilateral dimension of the relationship as demonstrated by the statement of intent that was signed between the two countries in May 2022. So there is currently a lot of effort being put into strengthening uh, the bilateral relations and the statement of intent was definitely viewed as a step in the right uh, direction. And there is certainly a lot of hope that it will be upgraded into uh, this kind of more robust partnership agreement, which will cover not only security and defense, uh, as is currently the case, but also maybe issues such as, you know, student mobility or cooperation on on probably research and development or people to people uh, relations. There is a hope that it might be followed by the structured dialogue between the UK and uh, Czech, uh, Czech Republic. So there is definitely uh, a change of mood here in the Czech Republic in this sense, because, you know, current Sunak's government is viewed as much more pragmatic and not as focused on EU bashing as the previous Johnson's cabinet. And also the Civic Democratic Party, which leads the current Czech government, always projected itself as a as a kind of liberal conservative grouping very much in the Anglo tradition with close alignment with the British conservatives. So all these aspects do play a role. And that, I think that's really helpful kind of unpacking. I, I, one question that kind of springs from that is you talked about a lot of sympathy and a, a soft spot for things British. Does that translate into substantive 
policy in terms of is the government in Prague willing to be more flexible about terms because it wants to have a good relationship with the UK or is there still very much a, uh, a firm line about defending Czech interests and priorities? Hmm. Uh, this is an excellent question. I mean, uh, maybe not so much about defending Czech interests and priorities, but of course, also that is a key concern, but uh, maybe more about defending the EU priorities, you know, and interests as such. So uh, maybe like, uh, you know, during the withdrawal negotiations, there probably was some hope from the British side that they might kind of use uh, Czechia to kind of break the unity within the EU and to gain some concessions like for the uh, negotiations. Uh, but and even though like the relationship with the UK for Czechia has always been very important in terms of, you know, the, the political connections or the trade relationship, uh, the EU unity and, and the kind of allegiance towards the European Union has been this even higher overriding uh, principle in this in this sense. So uh, the Czechs were, for instance, also very, uh, very cautious about strengthening in any way the bilateral relationship before the actual Brexit, you know, or before the conclusion of the negotiations, because they were afraid that they might be accused of breaking the unity of the uh, of the uh, European Union. So uh, they are. It, it's it's a very delicate, once again, balancing act for for the Czech policymakers in this sense. But 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 it's getting easier and easier. Like when uh, when the relationship between the United Kingdom and the EU are not so strained as they used to be. Uh, it's much easier also like for, for the Czech Republic and for the Czech politicians. Oh, certainly, and you know, it, it reduces that need to kind of triangulate between uh, everyone who's involved. It just kind of pulls me sort of a, a broader query about the Czech Republic you know, one of the things we saw during the negotiations was, for example, uh, Hungary or indeed Poland making use of this process as a way of demonstrating that they could be team players with uh, the Commission uh, and with the EU more generally at a time when there were heightened tensions uh, over rule of law and you know a number of other issues. And so, you know, you had this site of Viktor Orban saying very nice things about Michel Barnier at various points during the, the negotiations, which always felt slightly odd, uh, given everything else he said about the rest of the, the Commission and indeed the rest of the EU. Um, how, how has that worked in the Czech case? You know, was this an opportunity to build uh, political capital with the rest of the Union? Was it something where the EU was not really that concerned about Czech priorities. You know, how does this fit within the broader sweep of Czech uh, EU policy? Mm -hmm. uh, wonderful, excellent question. I mean, uh, many people perhaps expected uh, the Czech Republic to kind of maybe 
stand uh, more firmly behind the uh, behind the UK rather than the EU, given like the level of Euroscepticism in the Czech Republic, both at the level of political parties and the and the general public. Uh, so, so there was this expectation uh, that uh, that the Czech uh, Republic might cause troubles within uh, the EU27, but that really has never been the case. Uh, the Czech Republic stood like very firmly with uh, like all the uh, with uh, all the others not breaking the EU uh, unity, and uh, it, it came as as a big surprise to uh, to many. I mean, of course, like everybody was following uh, the Brexit issue very much. On the other hand, it was not as politicized as an issue uh, as uh, one might perhaps expect. And the, the Brexit salience in Czechia has never been as high as in countries that have like more direct economic and political ties to the UK, such as, for instance, Ireland or uh, the, the Netherlands, uh, even though, of course, the political and economic ramifications of Brexit were far-reaching and affected uh, many European countries, including uh, Czechia. So uh, in general, in Czechia, you know, we, we have had to deal obviously with all the changes in trade relationships and the rights of, it, of Czech citizens living in the UK and so forth. Also the changes in the bilateral Czech-UK uh, uh, relations, uh, but uh, it has never been such a huge issue as might have been the case in other, uh, in other uh, countries. And uh, it was uh, one of the policies uh, in which uh, the Czech government uh, could claim to really stand firmly behind, uh, you know, the EU as such and protecting the integrity of the single market and, and uh, you know, things like that. Do you think that Brexit has changed Czech attitudes towards the EU? You know, we at various points we had discussion about well, various member states following the UK uh, out or, you know, kind of that similar kind of debate. And I think what's your horrible version? It's a Chexit, which is not the most horrible version of this kind of, <laughs> kind of work. How much is that still there? I mean, we still have quite a lot of uh, soft Euroscepticism, you know, so, you know, no desire, strong desire to join the Euro. The questions about burden sharing, about uh, immigration, uh, you know, clearly there are still points of tension. But you know, is has has Brexit killed off the idea of a Chexit, or just put it into a freezer for the for the time being? Yes, it actually has. I mean. The debate on Chexit is uh, currently basically not here uh, anymore, and I think that Brexit has really played a huge role in putting uh, this issue into freezer, as you uh, as you put it. Uh, because right after the 2016 referendum, we really heard a lot of noises within the Czech politics, you know, uh, especially from the far right uh, party saying, "Okay, we will do it exactly the same ways as the Brits. We will leave the English way," and we will, you know, th there was this kind of inspiration uh, felt from what uh, from what the Brits did. So there was a lot of debate on Chexit, but then when everybody saw how terribly complicated 
the Brexit withdrawal process has been how much more complicated than uh, originally expected. Uh, these voices have become completely silent. So uh, yes, there, there is of course debate on whether we should like join Euro or not. There is a lot of debate about various aspects of, of uh, EU policies, but on leaving uh, the European Union, this debate is definitely in freezer. Uh, at least for the time being, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I think you know one of the questions. You know, there's a clear difference between being put in the freezer and being killed outright. Mm. And yeah, you know, it, it's it's curious as to how much people see that the difficulty of leaving is down to the choices that the British government made, or indeed didn't make during uh, that long period of the negotiations, as opposed to it will be difficult for any country that wants to leave, even if they are not as uh, disorganised uh, or you know directionless as the the UK appeared to be. So you know, what's the balance? You know, how much is this? The British did it in a particularly difficult way mm -hmm. uh, versus it's difficult. However, you do it. Hmm. Uh, so so there is definitely the perception that. Uh, should it be Czechia, you know, to, to leave the European Union, the EU would definitely not bother to spend so much time and resources of, on negotiating its withdrawal. You know, the process would be probably much quicker and more uh, straightforward and they would not invest like so much political capital, but also other capital uh, into negotiating uh, the withdrawal. Um, I think that obviously, like from the far right, uh, political parties, they would claim, should it become an issue again, that it would be much easier uh, in the case of, of uh, Czechia. But I think that uh, to, you know, the rest of all the others, it's quite clear that, you know, various issues might come up. And yes, uh, obviously, a lot of it was down to uh, the current British political climate and context. But you know, also also other countries, including Czechia, would face uh, unexpected hurdles along the way. You know, things that we cannot envisage at the at the moment. But the EU would be, uh, we think, very uh, kind of quick in saying goodbye to the Czech Republic uh, than was the case with the UK. Well, sometimes there's a value in being uh, a smaller member state if it avoids. <laughs> Uh, the attention uh, of people who you don't want to have uh, mm -hmm. giving you too much attention. Mm -hmm. um, maybe just as a, a final thought then, um, what what for you is the next important stage in this process of Brexit or indeed of UK-EU relations? You know, what, what's the, the, the next thing that you think listeners should be paying attention to, whether that's in the UK or uh, in the EU? Hmm. That, that's uh, another wonderful question. You know, I I like to think uh, of Brexit as uh, this kind of a novel, you know, with with multiple sequels. I mean, you may have read the first book, but uh, the, the, the story is still far from over. I mean, the characters keep evolving, the plot keeps thickening. And just when you think that you have reached a conclusion, a new twist appears. So. Uh, 
this is how you know I, I view Brexit as this kind of continuous intricate story that constantly demands certain uh, certain attention as this kind of dynamic evolving reality. It's almost like like living organism. It grows, it adapts, it impacts various you know aspects of Czech public policy and international relations, and uh, not just Czech public policy, but also you know other in in case of other uh, other uh, countries. So. Yeah, it's not just about adapting to the new rules, uh, but also about anticipating what the next chapter in this ongoing saga uh, might uh, might bring. And yes, I think that it will be about, you know, uh, navigating from both sides about improving certain aspects uh, of uh, of the cooperation, we've been seeing the moves from both sides, from the UK and the EU, and I uh, vision this kind of pattern and dynamics to uh, to keep uh, continuing. Obviously, like everybody will be watching with bated breath uh, the general elections, the uh, the outcome. But I think that now now everybody is uh, much more relaxed about this you know with uh, with uh, Boris Johnson being uh, out of the of the office so uh, it's a very good uh, metaphor it makes me think that I'm kind of like the similar thing with films of m- movie franchises that go on mm-hmm. and i think the one thing we learn is that whenever it's all quiet and everyone's having a bit of a relax it's when you get the next uh, yes big <laughs> thing happening uh, mm-hmm. so let's let's look forward to that one um Monica, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. I think it's been really helpful to hear um, what you have to say about what's happening in the UK, but also what's happening in Czechia and in the EU. So uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me and for the excellent and thought-provoking questions. I mean, it's been truly a pleasure talking here on the podcast. So I'm sending everyone warm greetings from the Czech Republic and uh, bye and until next time.